Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. In this message series, we're talking about the important topic of gender, and our guide is the, the creation story found in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Now, chapter 1 of Genesis is really a summary of the entire creation event. Chapter 2 is a kind of a detailed drill down on how God created the, the genders for humankind. And then chapter 3 is uh, part of the story where we discover how sin entered into this world and began to break and warp a lot of the good that God had created. But we're talking about gender, and in chapter 1, the, there's one verse summary that, that describes the creation of our gender. It's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Here's what we read. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now we start here because this identifies the two things that are, are true of us at the very core of who we are as people. First of all, at the very foundation is the fact that we are made in the image of God. This shapes really everything about who we are. Uh, one of the best descriptions of this is that we need God. There's a lot more that can be said, but at the core of us, we need a relationship with God. The second thing that's said about us is the next thing that's built on this foundation is our gender. We are either male or female. We're talking about what that means, but again, our summary statement is we need each other. We cannot uh, reflect God's image accurately or do his work completely without each other. So today we turn our attention to the romantic and the sexual aspect of the relationship between men and women. Now, if we were like the rest of the animal kingdom, there really wouldn't be much to say on the topic of sex. I mean, male and female getting together to procreate is, of course, an essential aspect of all of life. But because our gender rests on the fact that we are made in the image of God, there's just much more involved when it comes to sex for us. This is why, if you look at all of human history, it becomes pretty clear that we cannot seem to stop talking about, writing stories about, and singing songs about sex. Why? Well, for us, sex is about intimacy, not just procreation or just physical desires. God himself is the author of intimacy. He is three persons <clears throat> and yet one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working together in such perfect unity that it's still just one God, not three persons, but just one God. That's a connection so close that we had to invent a new word for it. The word is Trinity, which means three in one. And because we bear his image, this is why we, down deep at the core of who we are, we want intimacy with one person, a significant other, a soulmate for life. God is a three-in-one intimacy, which is why we pursue this two-in-one intimacy, one from each gender bonded together in the intimacy of marriage. So at the end of the chapter that gives us detail about the creation of male and female for the humankind, we read this in chapter 2, verse 24 of Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This is the verse we're going to focus on this morning. For what reason exactly? It says, for this reason. Well, the immediate reason is the fact that Eve has just been created. But really, the reason points back to the everything that's happened up to this point in the creation story. The fact that God created them, male and female. The fact that God created Adam first and said, it's not good for him to be alone. And then God created Eve as his opposite counterpart. This is the wording that he used. All of, 
All of this is why men and women throughout all of history haven't just looked at each other with curiosity, but they have paired up and joined together as one. Now, this is described in just this one verse that we just read. But of course, it's not just one moment in time. Men don't just march out the front door of their parents' house and marry the first woman that they see. Now, there's usually much more involved in just this one verse. There's a much longer process involved. So today I want to double-click on this verse and consider the levels of intimacy that are involved in this two-in-one selection process that we now refer to as falling in love. Now, if you're single, you may be wondering, well, how is this going to be helpful for me? Well, for several reasons, I think it will be. First of all, you never know what the future holds. You may be single now, but maybe this time next year, you're not going to be single. And this will be really helpful in that process. There's a good chance that some of your friends are going to fall in love this year, or maybe they're already in that process. And if they ask for help, you might be able to really help them with some of these ideas. And the simple fact is, even if you are single now and you remain single for the rest of your life, you are still created in the image of God, which means you need intimacy. And three of the four levels of intimacy that we're going to be talking about this morning do not require marriage. Now, intimacy usually begins with attraction. This is where it started. This is the first in your outline, attraction. This is where it started with Adam and Eve. And this is where it still starts today. When Eve was created, this was Adam's response, the verse before the one we just read in verse 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, at first glance, doesn't this sound kind of like a me, Tarzan, you, Jane kind of passionless response on Adam's part? That's kind of the way it sounds. It's like, huh, he's just kind of stating the facts here. But God chose to tell the creation story in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word that's used here for woman is an onomatopoeia. An onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it describes. For example, the English word sizzle is an onomatopoeia. Sizzle sounds like what it describes. You can see the steak sizzle as you say that word. So an onomatopoeia sounds like what it describes, and that's what this word is in Hebrew. So the Hebrew word for woman would be pronounced isha. Isha. So Adam's first response when he saw Eve was isha. One writer I read put it this way. This was Adam basically saying, wow. Isha. Wow. And so the next verse we read is, for this reason, a man will leave. He'll drop whatever he's doing, start moving in the direction of intimacy with that particular woman. Now, the attraction doesn't have to begin with the beauty of the woman, but that's usually how it happens. It's interesting to me, on a side note, the Hebrew word for man is ish. <laughs> I'll let you draw your own conclusions about what that might mean. Ish. <clears throat> Now, attraction, of course, is very superficial. You don't know what's true of this person on the inside. You don't know the real person. It's just a superficial attraction. You don't know their personality. You don't know their intellect. You don't know their sense of humor. If they have a sense of humor, you're just attracted on the outside. And so attraction is not intimacy. It's not one of the levels of intimacy. It's just a spark that tends to and might lead to intimacy. But intimacy itself begins when you open your mouths and you begin to talk. 
You are now entering level one. That is intellectual intimacy. Intellectual intimacy. This is the next item on your listening guide. Intellectual intimacy. As you talk, you're getting a window beyond the surface of the person. You're getting a look into who they really are on the inside. You're sharing ideas. You're having conversations about the things that really matter to each of you. You're learning from each other and about each other. You're being challenged by each other. Maybe you're even beginning to dream about some of the things that you both would like to see happen together in the future. Listen to how King David's future wife, Abigail, is described in 1 Samuel 25.3. It says she was an intelligent and beautiful woman. The beautiful part probably got the heads to turn, but the intelligent part was what really attracted David to her over time. We are made in the image of God. That's the foundation on which our gender rests. And part of what that means, being made in the image of God, is that we have the capacity to think beyond just the moment. We are not driven by instinct. We are driven by intellect. We can talk about abstract ideas that we can't see with our eyes. We can dream about a future that has yet to exist and, and begin to understand how we might be a part of building that future that we dream and imagine. And so meaningful conversations stir our souls, and they knit our hearts together with like-minded people. Now, you don't need to be married to experience this and to invest in relationships that are intellectually stimulating and bonding and knitting hearts together. But if you're married or you're heading towards marriage, this is a critical part of the relationship. You know, the first time I called my future wife to ask her out on a date, I spent a lot of time scripting what I was going to say before I got on the phone with her. I knew from experience that silence is a killer in relationships, especially new relationships. And I, by that time, had been on plenty of painful dates characterized by awkward silence. And I knew that she was a little bit on the quieter side, and so I was ready. I mean, I had all kinds of material. I had questions. I had follow-up questions. I was ready to talk. <coughs> now, I don't remember how many questions we got through, but I do remember that pretty early on in the conversation, I just set my notes aside. And we talked maybe for 30 minutes. That was when I realized there just might be a future for the two of us. Because if you've got to script a conversation, that relationship can't last very long. You know, that was a good starter idea, but early on, we, we just clicked intellectually. We could talk. But even though we clicked intellectually, that hasn't meant that intellectual intimacy just kind of has automatically grown from that first conversation, and we haven't had to work on this. No, again and again, we've had to dial up the effort and the time that's required to talk with each other and connect intellectually. I mean, the next time you're out for dinner at a nice restaurant, just look around at the couples, and you'll probably be able to tell the ones that are on a first date or on an early date, you know, early in the relationship date. They're putting in a lot of effort to keep that conversation going. A lot of kind of forced laughter and quick you know, follow-up. They're, they're just desperate to keep this conversation going. And then you look around, and you can identify the married people too, right? Not so much, huh? 
They're the ones that seem to be completely comfortable just kind of staring off into space, <laughs> maybe checking their phones. Every once in a while they'll say something, but they're, a lot of times they're just kind of sitting there waiting for stuff to happen. Why? Well, it's very easy for intellectual complacency to set in in any relationship. The basic get-to-know-you conversations have already been had. You know, there's, there's really not a lot of facts that you don't know about this person's background and upbringing and what they like. I mean, you've, you've had those conversations. And if you're married you're, and it's nighttime and it's dinner time, you're probably really tired. And so it's easy just to kind of sit there and not engage in conversation. You see, a lot of marriage intellect and conversation time goes into problem solving. I mean, especially when you're first married, there's just all kinds of problems to solve, and it just continues on. You know, at first, you're solving all kinds of money problems. I mean, however the two of you have handled money, now you've got to figure out how two become one financially. And that's never a seamless, automatic kind of thing, and that requires a lot of conversations. And there's usually a lot of conflict problems that need to be addressed. Two people don't, in a broken world, they don't become one without, boy, a lot of Sparks flying and challenges occurring. We're actually going to look at some of that next week. And then if God grants you children, there's a lot of problems to solve. And you, you can fill most of your days talking about, well, what do we do about this? And how do we address that with this child? And how are we going to handle this with this child? But then what tends to happen in a marriage relationship is eventually, hopefully, some of the money challenges begin to stabilize. Maybe for two reasons. You, you begin to figure out how to work together on money would be one of the reasons. And then hopefully as time goes on, maybe you are able to come up with a little more money than you did when you first got married. And so that it's not as tense. So maybe some of the money challenges subside. Hopefully you begin to figure out some of the conflict things and you learn how to work together. Uh, what I've seen, if that doesn't happen, eventually over time, kind of the two, sadly, the two married people kind of carve out their own territory and they, they kind of figure out how to become roommates, but you're not arguing as much. And then if you have kids, well, eventually, what do kids do? They, they grow up. If you feed them, they grow up <laughs> and they move out and then it's just the two of you. And you discover at that moment that you don't have a lot to talk about. You don't have money problems to talk about. You know, there's conflict still, but maybe not as much. And, you know, the kids you can talk about remotely, but not near as much as when they're living there. When they're living there, there's a lot of coordinating and conversation needs to have happen. And a lot of times at that point, marriages really struggle. Because having spent 20-plus years solving problems together, they sit down in a quiet moment in an empty house, and they realize, we forgot how to talk. We don't know how to talk. So Rebecca and I, we've been through that, and we learned we, we had to work on conversation all over again. Now, it seems like, look, we've been married for 34 years. We should just be able to talk. It's like, no, you've got to keep working on it. We had to carve out the time and put in the effort, kind of like when we were dating. So how do you do that? I mean, like I said, you've had all of the basic conversations. You've you know all of the get-to-know-you answers to the questions, so what do you talk about? Well, intellectual intimacy grows out of mutual interests. One of the mistakes that 
marriages sometimes make is they, at points like this, he goes off in pursuit of some of his interests that he's always been wanting to do. Now that the kids are gone, he can do it. She goes off in pursuit of her interests, and not only do they have no kids to talk about, they now have no interests in common to talk about. So if you're going to develop intellectual intimacy, you need mutual interests. One of the best questions you can ask if you find yourself stuck in a marriage in this category of intellectual intimacy is, is there a new assignment that God has for us as a couple? What's the new assignment that we can work on together? Because with any new assignment, there's going to be new challenges. We've got to figure out how we're going to do this. And there's going to be new problems that come up, and we're going to talk about how to solve those problems. But intellectual intimacy doesn't just click. It takes a lot of effort in a broken and fallen world with selfish hearts like we all have. The next level of intimacy is emotional intimacy. This is enjoying each other's company and having a certain chemistry together. It's what the Bible is referring to when it says in Ecclesiastes 9.9, enjoy life with your wife. Enjoy the relationship. This is what people are referring to usually when they talk about falling in love. They're talking about emotional intimacy. And that's an important part of any relationship. But this is the squirreliest of the levels because it's about how we feel and it's about how they feel. And that changes on a moment-by-moment basis. And added to that, the current wisdom in our culture right now is that this is the very center of intimacy, is emotional intimacy. And so if for a moment we feel less than intimate with this person, maybe we're falling out of love and maybe there's someone else that we need to fall in love with. This is why emotional intimacy is preceded by intellectual intimacy and followed by the next one we're going to look at, which is spiritual intimacy. Because if emotional intimacy is not anchored to something more stable than our emotions, then it will drive intimacy into instability. And then you'll experience the falling out of love experience. You see, let's say for a moment your intellectual intimacy is is taking a hit. Maybe the kids have moved out, or, or maybe there's just kind of a lull in the relationship. And a lot of people begin to conclude, oh, no, we're not in love anymore. They're focusing on the emotional intimacy. Rather than realizing, hey, we're, we're just in a transition period. We've got to fire up the efforts on the intellectual intimacy again. Then the emotions will follow. But if you let the emotions lead, they'll always drive you into the ground. They'll always end the relationship eventually. So that's emotional intimacy. The next level is spiritual intimacy. Now, we tend to think of this as kind of the maraschino cherry on top of the relationship. You know, if you can get it, great. It's, it's kind of an add-on feature, but it's not essential. But that's not true about who we are. And the reason is because every one of us is spiritual. We are spiritual beings. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. Our spiritual life, it turns out, is the deepest and longest-lasting part of who we are. So this is why everybody worships. They may not come here to a church and worship the God we worship, but everybody worships something or someone. This is why, particularly when we're we're in trouble, everybody prays. They may just pray to the universe, whatever that is, but they, they cry out and help and ask for help. 
This is why we all look for something bigger to attach our lives to, some bigger purpose, because we have a sense that we're to be about something bigger than ourselves. It's because we are spiritual beings. But what allows two people to be spiritually intimate is not just the fact that they are spiritual beings, but that they are worshiping the same God and that they are praying to the same God and that they are building their lives with instructions from the same God. That builds intimacy spiritually. So spirituality isn't just a we happen to both like Italian food kind of connection. This is, a, this is at the very foundation of who we are. There's nothing deeper and more intimate about us than our soul. And this means that the journey towards full intimacy with another person ultimately is a spiritual journey. If you don't share the same spiritual foundation, you will not be able to connect at the deepest level of who you are, no matter how strong the relationship is. Because you're building from a different blueprint, which will matter more and more and more as time goes on. You know, the foundation of a building is really important when you're putting the first floor on that building. But if you're putting the 10th floor or the 20th floor on that building, the weight now really matters on the foundation level. And that's the way life is. Marriage is about building something together. And if the foundation is not compatible, there's just a lot of challenge in the future. So let's apply this to dating. Let's say you start dating someone because, well, you're attracted to them and they're attracted to you. You really enjoy each other's company and you, you have a great time talking about all kinds of things. And so, because intellectual intimacy is moving forward, the emotions start moving and the two of you start moving towards intimacy. So as time goes on, the intellectual and emotional intimacy continues to grow. And then you finally bring up the spiritual category. And you're relieved to find out that this person that you're already pretty emotionally attached to passes the loves puppies, hasn't worshipped the devil, of course I believe in God, spiritual test. Whew, you're relieved because you really like this person now. The problem is, unlike you, they don't go to church. Now that should be a spiritual compatibility red flag. But the good news is, you bring it up, and oh, they, of course, would love to go to church with you. So you start going to church together. Now, every once in a while, there are signs that this is really not their thing. It's your thing, and they're coming along because it's your thing, not their thing. But by now, the emotional intimacy is so deep that your heart has already been given to this person. And your heart is now going to tremendous lengths to avoid taking any red flag seriously. So eventually the two of you get married. And then the spiritual truth comes out. There is no spiritual intimacy. This area of life then either becomes a source of great tension or the one who has been taking this more seriously and has been trying to build their life on God's blueprints, they, they have to pull back. They, they have to stop really engaging this. 
just for the sake of peace at home. They've got to be careful about what they say. They, they can't share with you excitedly about something they just read in the Bible and how God spoke to them because it's, it's just going to be awkward. They can't tell you about a conversation they had with someone else on a, of a spiritual nature because it's just going to irritate you. And this spiritual incompatibility becomes the deepest sadness of their life. So how can you prevent this from happening? Well, before you open up the door of your heart to intellectual and emotional intimacy, give careful attention to the spiritual foundation of the individual that you're interested in. Now, let me tell you this. Do not listen to what they say. This is a basic dating principle. People will say almost anything when they're dating. I mean, listen to what they say, but don't take it seriously when they tell you about who they are. What you want to look at is what they're actually building. That's how you know what the foundation is. Look at what they're actually doing. How are they spending their time? What do they want to talk about? What's actually true of how they're investing their life. And don't you dare fall for the trap of thinking that you can build a spiritual foundation for them. None of us can. I have to work on my spiritual foundation. My wife has to work on hers. Everybody has to work on their own spiritual foundation. We can help others, but we can't lift a finger to construct it. We can just encourage. Now, if I've just described you maybe, and you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for your significant other. I don't want you to feel bad right now, I just, but I have a suggestion for you. Don't write Christ off. Don't write him off. This spiritual stuff is not just a hobby for the one that you love. This is at the core of who they are. And if you're not committed to developing this aspect of your life, and as a result, this aspect of your marriage, then not only are you saying something significant to God about how you feel towards him, you're also saying something significant about your spouse and how you feel toward them. So I would just encourage you, check this out. If for no other reason than this is at the core of the person you love, go in search mode. Keep coming on Sundays. See what this is all about. Our goal is to try to present clear explanations of what this means and why. So check it out. You know, get a hold of a book maybe that addresses some of the questions you have about Christianity. You know, we've got a few actually out in the Welcome Center that you can grab free any Sunday. Now, of course, let me warn you, don't, don't make this decision to follow Christ just because you know it would make them so happy. No, you don't do that. This needs to be your decision. But at least take an interest in them by taking an interest in this. Now, the final level of intimacy, that is sexual. Sexual intimacy. The last Hebrew word in the verse that we are double-clicking on today is the word flesh. Genesis 2.24 again. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. It's a clear reference to sex. The Bible's big word on sex is not the word no. 
a lot of people think that's the Bible's big word on sex. Is No, that's not the big word on sex. It isn't the word bad. It isn't the word don't. The Bible's big word on sex is when. It's when. Sex is at the end of this verse for a reason. It's all about the timing and the order of intimacy. And that's because for us humans, sex is not just an act of biology. It's an act of intimacy. And intimacy requires exclusiveness. That's essential to intimacy. For example, if you decide to share something about yourself with everyone, or you decide to share it with just one person, which is more intimate? The one person. Now, if you lean in and say, I want to tell you, I've, not, I've never told anyone else this, and I'm only going to tell you. The other person leans in and thinks, wow, we're, I guess we're close. That's an intimate exchange. It's exclusive sharing. And what is essential to creating intimacy, then, is the safety, the safety of commitment. We will open up and share our lives to the degree that we feel safe. This is why two becoming one flesh occurs only after the leaving of father and mother and being united to his wife. Because what marriage is, we're going to look at this in a couple of weeks, but marriage is the statement of exclusivity. It's the commitment of exclusivity, of you only and no one else, that is essential to true intimacy. That creates the safety that is necessary for sex, which is the act of exclusivity, the act of intimacy. This is what safe sex really is. It's not protection from disease. It's protection from all that damages intimacy. It's the establishment of exclusivity and a commitment. Sexual intimacy is the highest level of intimacy because our sexual parts are the place where our body comes closest to our soul. This is the place where body and soul touch. This is why Adam and Eve felt the impact of sin first as nakedness. You know, the old marriage vows, I think, put it best. One of the old marriage vow statements was, with my body, I thee worship. That elevates sex to what it really is in God's eyes and what it really is in reality. Sex for us is a holy act of worship in which we reflect the three-in-one God by becoming two-in-one in flesh. And if we degrade sex to just a, a physical act outside of the two-in-one commitment of marriage, it ceases to be an act of true worship and becomes an act of self-worship. This is why nothing affects us the same way that, that sex does. And then whenever we venture beyond what God has said about this, it really affects us long term. You see, when we have sex, what we're really using is soul superglue. That's what sex is. It's soul superglue. It's an act that's linked to eternity. And if we treat that bond as casual, as something no different than eating a meal, 
gratifying a need, then it weakens our capacity for true intimacy. Recent studies on the effects of sex on the brain have shown that multiple sexual partners over time damages our ability to form lifelong bonds. These are brain scans. Come out the last 15 or so years. There's an interesting book on this you might want to read. It's not a Christian book. It's you know, a psychology book. It's called Hooked. It presents this research. And one of the analogies that's used in this book says, it turns out that for us, sex is kind of like scotch tape. Every time you separate from a sexual partner, your ability to really connect with the next partner is weakened. It's kind of like using scotch tape. You, know, you, you use it, and then you lift it up, and you use it something else, and pretty soon it, it just it doesn't stick. That's what they say sex is like for us. The more you have sex with other people, the less able you are to commit to one. Now why would that be true? It's because sex is attached to intimacy. It's not just a physical appetite for us like it is for the rest of the animal kingdom. Now, if this has been you, if your history is full of many sexual partners, that doesn't mean there's no hope for you. God's grace can redeem your past. I know many people that have come out of our culture's view on sex, and God has worked in their lives, and they've been able to marry and build something good. But if we turn the order of intimacy upside down, it's a problem. I mean, think of these levels as a pyramid. You start with intellectual intimacy, emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy, sexual intimacy. The way it works in our culture now is you go from attraction straight to sex. And it's flipping the pyramid upside down. What happens when you flip the pyramid upside down? Can't support the weight. It really is hard then to develop the rest of the intimacy that was supposed to precede the act of sex. This is why all the studies show that across the board, people in our culture are getting lonelier and lonelier and lonelier because we don't understand intimacy. You see, sex is the shortcut to the feeling of intimacy. But out of order, it actually ends up destroying real intimacy. Again, the Bible's word on sex is not no. It's not bad. It's when. It's God's design. It's when. So, again, as we read in Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united as wife, and they will become one flesh. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in a broken world. And our culture is very similar to pretty much every culture that has preceded ours. And that is that we have really tried to make our own way in this area. We've upended your design for intimacy. Father, I pray that wherever we are this morning, you would help us to see the next steps we need to take to begin to get back on your plan. 
Father, I pray particularly for the marriages that are represented here, God. I ask that you would, you would help them to see how they need to build intimacy, how they need to build intellectual intimacy and emotional intimacy and spiritual intimacy. Father, we do thank you for the gift of sex. We ask that you would help us to handle it as the gift it is that you've given us. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.